1: The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jessica Glenza, stepping in for Jonathan Friedland. No three words are likely to elicit a more divisive response in Washington than Medicare for
0: All. Almost every major Democrat in Washington is backed a massive government health care takeover that would totally obliterate Medicare. And yet, a
1: healthcare system that would cover all Americans, no matter their wealth, would solve one of the most intractable problems of American life. So what's stopping them? From the outside looking in, some listeners might wonder why any politician, Republican or Democrat, would hesitate to provide universal health coverage. The answer goes to the core of American ideas about the role of government and the free market. So I'm glad to say this week I spoke with a real expert in the area, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Abdul is a physician and epidemiologist and co-author of a new book, Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. He also ran for governor of Michigan where he advocated for universal health care. So you are primarily an advocate now, but you trained as a medical doctor in New York City. And I understand your career started to turn toward advocacy when you found one of your patients, a woman you had cared for in the hospital for two weeks, sleeping in a subway. What do you think that experience taught you about the American healthcare system?
0: You know, to me, when I think about uh, our country's failures to do even basic things like provide access to healthcare, uh, she was the picture of that. She's someone who had come into our emergency room with uh, the experience of having fallen and hit her head, a clearly developing welt on her forehead. And the physician decided not to do uh, what would be basic standard protocol for any patient who hit their head. And that was uh, to give her a CT. And she never got that CT. I mean, she ended up getting it when, when we admitted her, but she didn't get that CT in the emergency room uh, because of what that doctor said would be a quote unquote social admit. And that experience is something that is too common in America, it is a function of uh, the way we have ne- neglected to invest in basic public goods. Uh, and healthcare, I think is, is principal among them. And in the end, for me, it was a realization that if we are unable in our system to take on these basic public goods, what are we going to do as clinicians working in a broken system that tends to systematically neglect uh, and ignore uh, people like this patient to actually take on the kinds of inequities that had brought me to medicine in the first place? And and that was the moment I realized I didn't want to be a clinician working in a broken system. I wanted to be the kind of doctor who fixed those kinds of systems. And uh, that led me on a pathway uh, to becoming both a health commissioner, uh, ultimately running for office, and then uh, working in uh, public advocacy around health reform.
1: And can I just go back to a phrase you used when you described this patient? You said that the physician didn't want to admit her because she would have been a social admit. Was he basically saying that she would cost the hospital too much money to admit her as a patient?
0: In one term, he was describing several things. Number one, a patient who would cost the hospital too much and in a way that the hospital wouldn't be able to reimburse for. A patient whose problems are less medical than they are fundamentally social and societal. And then lastly, the kind of patient who he doesn't think we can actually help in our healthcare system. He tied that all into one three-word phrase, a social admit. Morally, he was absolutely wrong, but technically he's not wrong. Uh, Her challenges are, are very much of the sort that Uh, Any level of medical investment has to be conditioned on knowing that that patient will actually benefit from the medical investment that you make. And he's arguing that whatever we do for them clinically uh, will be wiped out because of... Uh, of their social circumstance. And he's speaking to a broader uh, failure of both the healthcare system to be able to take this on, but then even more broadly, a failure of our society to make sure that people, when they have medical problems, can actually benefit from medical care uh, because all of that value is not going to be wiped out by the fact that they're homeless uh, or cannot afford basic groceries uh, or cannot afford their medications.
1: Give me a stand back look at the American health system. How do most Americans get health insurance? And tell me a little bit about the story you included in your book about Lisa and her experience with the health insurance system.
0: Yeah. So health care is provided in a number of different ways in our country. Um, if you are low income, and depend, that depends on what state you live in, but if you're low income, you get access to this program called Medicaid and that's a small minority of people, a lot of folks are still low low income, but don't get access to Medicaid uh, for political purposes. Frankly, um, I- across the entire South of our country, states chose not to take federal money to expand Medicaid uh, after President Obama passed the Affordable Care Act. Then if you're older than 65, or uh, you have a certain set of disabilities, you have access to what's called Medicare. Uh, and that is government health insurance. That is a high quality program uh, that covers a large proportion of people in our country. And then everyone else uh, is left to fend for themselves. They either get their health care for the most part through their private employer who uh, will pay some proportion of the costs of what's called a premium, which is the bi weekly or monthly contribution to have health insurance, uh, or um, they may get it through uh, the ACA, uh, a set of subsidized exchanges that allow them to buy uh, a health care package uh, on the free market. Um, and then ten percent of Americans just don't have health insurance at all. They could go into an emergency room and get care that way. uh but any of the follow up uh, from that um they they would have to forego uh because uh there is no uh, program for them, and they tend to be the folks who are too high income to be able to uh to get Medicaid, but not high income enough for uh stably employed enough to get employer sponsored. Uh, healthcare coverage. And this leaves our system a a clear patchwork with a number of holes clearly that 10% of people fall through. And Lisa is an example of even if you have private health insurance through an employer it has instituted a set of systems that basically pass on uh, a lot of the cost of healthcare back onto people even after they've paid these, these premiums so lisa was on vacation with her husband you know rather ironically they were celebrating uh, that he had been a year cancer free his brain cancer had 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 nearly wiped out their their savings because The deductible, which is the amount of money that you have to pay to get access to the health insurance you already paid for if you get sick, was so high that um, they actually had to to borrow money uh, from friends and family to be able to pay down that deductible. But what happened to Lisa is that uh, she she then started to experience the the symptoms of a heart attack, and that heart attack nearly took her life. Uh, She spent uh, a long time in a hospital, and uh, they were back in the system again, now being forced to pay down uh, deductibles above and beyond the premiums. Uh, above and beyond the, the the fact that they had thought that their insurance was there for them, uh, and it illustrates just how tenuous and how porous even private employer sponsored health care or health insurance has become in the United States.
1: You know, now that we sort of have an idea what the costs are to individual people and what some of the systems are for people to get health insurance in the United States. Tell me a little bit about what Medicare for All would do and how that's different than this patchwork system that you just described.
0: Medicare for All uh, takes that patchwork system and eliminates it in favor of a single government insurance program that covers every single American.
1: That sounds a lot like the National Health Service in the UK.
0: You know, it's it's ironic. It, it does, but it's not even as expansive as as the National Health Service in the UK. And the National Health Service is both your insurer and your healthcare provider. You go to an NHS clinic when you need uh, to see a doctor. You go to an NHS hospital uh, if and when you get sick. Whereas in the US, right, the the care would stay private. Right, you would still go to a private uh, doctor's office or a private hospital. The difference is that your insurance would be public. It's a little bit more like what they have in Canada rather than what they have in the NHS. The irony is that enemies of Medicare for All call it a government takeover of healthcare, which if you were to institute in the U- in, in the UK, uh, it would be considered a private takeover of healthcare, um, which just shows how far away it is from being an actual government takeover of anything.
1: Medicare for All in American terms would be a radical departure from the current patchwork health system but what you're talking about is still not that different from how we pay for schools or roads or police in the United States. So, why has healthcare become such a fault line in American politics?
0: It has become such a fault line because there is a lot of money to be made uh, on healthcare in our country. Once you decide that it's Uh, okay to profiteer off of patients. There is a lot of money to be made uh, when sick people get sick. It turns out people will pay uh, almost anything that they can to get healthcare if and when they get sick. And our healthcare system has been built to take advantage of that fact. And to just put things into perspective here, the top two lobbying industries by sector in the United States are the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry spent 4.4 billion with a b dollars over the past 20 years to lobby and the insurance industry spent about 2.7 billion dollars with a b and in 2020 in a year when 15 million people lost their insurance the industry spent 151 million dollars on lobbying across 845 lobbyists nearly two lobbyists per member of congress and so the impact right that uh, they have on making sure that the political elites uh, support them and uh, their chokehold on American healthcare is is, is, is hard to undersell. And then the other aspect of that is that they have spent billions of dollars deploying, in effect, disinformation over the airwaves about what Medicare for all would mean for people. They say that it would uh, eliminate people's choice. When in fact, if you if you have health insurance in this country, you know that your health insurer does more to tell you what doctor you can see or not see. Uh, They say that it would ration care, but it it takes over a month to see a cardiologist in the United States, even if you have private health insurance. Uh, They say that it would cost too much, even though we spend. 18% 18% of all of the money in our entire economy on healthcare, which by the way, is nearly twofold what is spent in the UK per capita. And, and they do this in a way to play off of uh, a fundamental insecurity about a system that has been failing Americans for a very long time. And um, and so it has become such a uh, a political football, so to speak.
1: And what about the argument that Medicare for all would be too expensive for the American taxpayer? Would they see the end to these opaque terms like deductibles and premiums and copays and then have it directly taken out of their paycheck how would how would that work for people
0: so the way that people who have private health insurance today pay for their healthcare is that it gets taken out of their paycheck except for not only does it get taken out of their paycheck, but their employer, instead of actually increasing their paycheck, has to pay for some of that too. And then on top of that, when they have to go see a doctor, they have to pay a copay. And if and when they get really sick, they'd have to pay a deductible. Those things would go away uh, under Medicare for all. And instead, it would be a bi-weekly or monthly contribution, which by the way, would be substantially lower than what they pay right now, because it would be financed in a far more progressive way. By eliminating all of the redundancy of all of these billing systems, it would be far cheaper overall. And then lastly, uh, the way that we price healthcare would uh, be so much fairer and so much more focused on uh, the patient rather than uh, the well being of the providers because uh, the incentive to make money off of our care goes away at the insurance level. And so the best way forward is to build a program uh, that truly is affordable, that doesn't uh, account for 67% of all bankruptcies like the current system does, doesn't send 40% of cancer patients into bankruptcy, uh, but instead uh, offers us reliable health insurance no matter who who we are, what job we work, where we live, uh, and does so in a way uh, that puts our care first instead of the well-being of some corporation.
1: And I believe this is, and most people I think do as well, this historic legislation is about rebuilding the backbone of this country and giving people in this nation, working people, middle-class folks, uh, people who built the country a fighting chance. So now we're at a point where we've lost more than 530,000 American lives to the COVID-19 pandemic, and some people have argued that the health system in the United States has in fact made the pandemic worse. Is this the moment that Americans are going to be catalyzed to support Medicare for All?
0: I do hope that this is a moment where on the backs of the experiences of the courageous uh, nurses and and doctors and uh, and hospital workers who have fought the good fight on the front lines of this pandemic, uh, that we decide that it is time for us to build a healthcare system that dignifies people and the people who provide them healthcare. I worry though, right? The, the health insurance industry isn't going anywhere. The American Rescue Plan, the 1.9 trillion dollar COVID relief package, which is in many ways a, a, a real groundbreaking. Uh, law that that fundamentally changes the experience of childhood poverty in our country, it doubles down on the current system rather than uh, putting uh, Americans who'd lost their health insurance through this pandemic on uh, high quality government programs. Instead, it offers subsidies for those people to go back on their rickety private insurance that failed them in the first place. And so uh, it's going to take a real moment of change and people deciding that enough is enough uh, to to organize together uh, and inure each other to uh, the talking points and the disinformation uh, of the health insurance uh, industry um, so that we can finally get to something that really does make us sure that we will have the health care that we need when we need it, no matter who we are, what jobs we work, uh, or where in the United States we live.
1: But this isn't simply a party versus party issue, correct? Many in the Democratic Party, especially centrists, feel very uneasy about creating a Medicare for all program over the so-called public option. That would be an option for people to purchase uh, health insurance provided by the government. This includes people like President Joe Biden. From your perspective, what are the flaws with the public option and where does it fall short and what should
0: progressives do about it? the challenges with the public option are this number one it would not get us to universal health coverage just because there is a public option doesn't mean that uh, it would necessarily cover everyone it's just another option the second is that it doesn't do the job of reducing healthcare costs across the board the third problem is that it actually creates a uh, a real challenge of political economy uh, because what will happen is a lot of these insurance companies, knowing that there is a public option available, will do everything they can to dish off Uh, their their most expensive, sickest patients onto the public plan. And then what happens from there is that uh, you have opponents of any sort of government uh, health insurance pointing to that public plan and saying, wow, look how much more expensive it is, not because it's poorly uh, operated, but instead because it's being forced to deal with the fact that every other uh, insurer is trying to cherry pick the least expensive patients and dumping the most expensive patients onto the public plan. Um, We've got to be honest about that.
1: And so what should progressives do in this moment, people who support Medicare for All in Congress, what should those representatives be doing in your opinion?
0: I think we've got to continue to be driving, continue to be talking about this issue, uh, and we've got to continue to raise it. Look, I, I, I understand that uh, this administration is not likely uh, to pass Medicare for all. In fact, President Biden said that he would veto it if it passed, uh, which, I, which I actually just think is, is absurd. But we do know, right, that we have to keep working toward this. And uh, this kind of a reform uh, is something that uh, is worth the fight even if it's not going to potentially become law in the shorter term. At the same time, I think it's going to happen a lot faster than people think. I know that the movement for Medicare for All right now feels like it's on its heels. Uh, we had two really exciting primaries from uh, Senator Bernie Sanders who ran on this issue, uh, but we have a growing number of Congress people who believe in support and will fight for Medicare for All. Our job is to continue to organize. We have to leverage this moment and the demonstration of our fa- the failure of our healthcare system that the pandemic has, has given us, right? Uh, we have to leverage this moment to articulate what better can and should look like. What I would like is if
1: you could... Describe the health battles that we're going to see in the next year as the Biden administration tries to pass a public option and how we should think about those reforms in the context of what you're proposing, which is a completely different system that centers the patient's needs, but does involve a lot more government than some Americans might be comfortable with. How do we think about these upcoming health battles?
0: I think sometimes um, we assume that there's a lot more ideology involved than there is partisanship. And I, I want to be clear about what I mean by that. I think the, the the way that partisanship has mapped to ideology has been completely broken, uh, frankly, by Donald Trump and Trumpism. And the basic mistake that the Obama administration made when they passed the ACA was to think that somehow the level of opposition to the ACA was linear rather than being an on or off switch. The ACA was a a market-driven, uh, relatively bipartisan approach to health reform that had been pioneered by the Conservative Heritage Foundation and passed into law for the first time at the state level by none other than Mitt Romney in Massachusetts. And yet the opposition that they got was fierce and it was everything they possibly could throw at any reform. And we assume that somehow had uh, President Obama run on and, and, and decided to enact Medicare for all, that the opposition would have been any less fierce. And that's just there's no evidence to suggest otherwise. In fact, there is really no difference in the opposition that any Democratic president is going to get uh, based on what the actual plan uh, that they are running on or trying to enact actually is. There is an on switch and an off switch. And if they turn that opposition on, it's going to be all out. And I think that in the end, what that tells us is that rather than these incremental reforms that force us to fight these all out battles uh, every decade or so to get a very small reform, why don't we just try and do the right thing uh, and pass Medicare for all, which solves a lot of these problems once and for all uh, to the same kind of opposition that we would get uh, for small, far smaller, more incremental reforms in the first place.
1: I think what you're advocating for is not necessarily just health reform of what we have in the United States, but for us to reconsider what we even think of as health from a consumer product to something that we should consider a collective
0: good. Is that fair to say? That's quite radical. Well, that's absolutely right, Jessica, but it's not really that radical when you think about almost every other high-income country in the world. And just to illustrate the point, you know, if I walked up to you and I said, hey, Jessica, look, I've got five MRIs for 500 bucks and you don't need an MRI, you're probably not going to buy those MRIs for me. Healthcare is not a consumer good. People don't actually want healthcare. What they want is health. And after they get sick, healthcare is a means to getting back to health. And then you know the the sad thing is that our system will come back after you're already sick and say, well, you know, instead of those fives for five hundred dollars, I've got one for five thousand, and people will pay that, and it's preying off of those uh, those peculiarities of the way that we interact with healthcare. Uh, that has left our healthcare system so lucrative for the people who profiteer off of it, and so broken for everyone else who relies on it. And so, yes, healthcare is not a consumer good. We don't we don't really shop around for healthcare. I mean, you think about the story of uh, Lisa. When she was starting to feel that crushing chest pain, it's not like she pulled out an app and said, hmm, I wonder what the rates are at five different hospitals. And if I can shop around services, if she had done that, she would literally not be around to have told her story. And so it's not a consumer good. We have to deal with the fact that healthcare ought to be a human right, whether you are Lisa Cardillo, uh, Jeff Bezos. Or my patient in New York, whom we started this conversation with, you deserve to have your body cared for if and when it falls ill. And the fact that we don't do that thing in this country is a moral uh, abomination and we can solve it. Uh, We just have to decide that we have the political will to do it.
1: Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, physician and co-author of the new book, Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. Thanks so much for taking time to speak with me today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for highlighting this really critical issue
1: that's all from me this week. I've really enjoyed stepping in, but your regular host, Jonathan Friedland, will be back behind the mic next Friday. Make sure to listen back to Wednesday's episode of UK Politics Weekly, as Heather Stewart runs through the latest news, including how Westminster is dealing with calls for better policing in the face of violence against women. But for now, I say goodbye. Your producer is Danielle Stevens, and I'm Jessica Glenza, Wherever you are, please stay safe, and thanks so much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com podcasts.